Scripture in this evening will be from Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Mark 2, 23 through 28. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do not what is lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Colossians, the third chapter, Colossians chapter 3, that is where we will begin our study tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to be together again this Lord's Day. We're certainly grateful for every privilege that we have that God provides us with to be able to come together to worship Him and to be with our brethren, and it's always an encouragement to be with you and to sing songs of praise, to pray to God, to worship Him, and to study from His Word. And so we're so thankful for this opportunity once again. In the book of Colossians, in the third chapter, and in verse 17, or verse 16, we'll begin there, where... Paul writes, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Everything that we do is supposed to be done in the name of Christ or by His authority. And I think that is something that we all probably have come to understand and appreciate and even recognize that Whatever it is that we do in life, whatever it is that we do as part of our work and function in the Lord's body, in the church, then it is to be done with Christ's authority. And if we are participating in something, if we are involved in anything with which we do not have God's authority, then we need to stop that immediately and we need to repent because it's a matter of sin that we have violated God's Word. And while sometimes we might see a sermon title like this, Bible Authority, we might begin to roll our eyes and think another sermon on this topic again. It is something that is so critical and important. And oftentimes we might make application to some things that we have heard time and time again. The age-old sermons on the work of the church or how we are to worship God and we look at principles of Bible authority and we might look at how we are to establish authority and direct 
statements or commands or an approved apostolic examples, necessary implications or inferences. Or as Brother Doy Moyer in a book that he has written, he says, tell, show, imply. I think he's using the same kind of terminology, just a little bit different, but he means all the same things that we've probably heard. We've looked at how we establish Bible authority. We talk about that. And we've, it's an important part of our preaching and our teaching that we need to think about always discussing Bible authority. We need to always talk about how we are to establish Bible authority and practicing everything that we do with God's authority. And I don't know if preaching on Bible authority has ever been in vogue, like the in thing. It's probably always been something that people have always criticized a little bit. And that's still true today. Even with people, preachers that I would say are in my generation, that they would still very much be critical of preaching on Bible authority and such matters. Just as an example, one Gospel preacher he, who preaches among non-institutional churches of Christ that we would probably label as a conservative preacher, a conservative church where he preaches. He said this about commands, examples, and necessary inferences. He said this very publicly on Facebook, so it's not like I went digging for this or very hard. You know how Facebook is. It, it pops up right there and you can see it. And he said, talking about commands, examples, and inferences, he says some of it was just reverse engineering to arrive at the same contrived conclusions. And I asked him, what kind of conclusions are you talking about? What kind of things are you trying to hint at? And I asked him this list of questions. Are you talking about baptism for remission of sins? Are you talking about women's roles in the church? Are you talking about supporting businesses from the church treasury and how we use our money? Or are you talking about instrumental music? What contrived kinds of conclusions are you talking about here? Please tell me, please, because I don't understand. It's a little vague in what you say. Another... Gospel preacher, as I mentioned, for a non-institutional church. He said this, it's a pretty lengthy quote. He said, you remember lessons where the word authority was mentioned many, many, many times. And it was dissected and things were drilled down. And you remember lessons about gopher wood and red heifers and strange fire. And you remember about all of those examples that we see that talk about how God views things in relation to what He said, in relation to what He hasn't said, and how He interacts with His people based on those things. And if you have been paying attention very long at all, you know that I have not done lessons like that. I have not done lessons where I use gopher wood as an example of God's authority and what He has spoken. You've never heard me do a lesson on specific or generic authority. We've not had any lessons on instrumental music or how the church should spend its money. And I admit to that, that those lessons have not been taught. And then he goes on to say, there's a lot of talk in this town about us being an unsound church. <laughs> and you begin to wonder why, huh? 
And you can just see the attitude uh, and the complete disregard and the complete uh, view that he has where we just don't even need to talk about it. And this is again coming from someone who is not too much older than myself. Another gospel preacher, he said, I spent a lot of time with preachers, lunch with preachers, getaways with preachers, and I started hearing this. Hadn't heard the term that much before. I started hearing the term sound a lot. There are sound preachers. There are unsound preachers. There are sound churches where you can go, and there are unsound churches where we don't go. I learned that it had to do with the way a church conducted worship, the way a church used their funds, the way a church did their collective work. It was a lot about churches and their organization and their money. It was a lot about that. He goes on to say, it is really easy to label everyone, isn't it? Speaking about the term sound, the second surprise is that I'm going to show you all of them. There are seven. None of these verses are about the stuff the preachers told me they were about. I'm not saying that it is unimportant to study the organization of the church, the work of a local church, how we use the funds, how we conduct worship, but don't call someone unsound because of those things when the Bible connects it to other things. You can see that he's trying to separate all of this, isn't he? He's trying to say, well, this isn't going to be a test of if a church is sound or not. And if they happen to have a fellowship hall or they begin to use their funds in support of other businesses in ways that the Bible doesn't talk, well, we can't call them unsound. You see that this demonstrates the same kind of attitude. And for this fellow preacher is wanting to redefine the word sound to remove the work, worship, and mission of the church as a test of soundness. Even more, I've heard similar kinds of comments from preachers that commands or statements that are very direct, they, they carry the largest amount of weight, if you will, when we're talking about Bible authority. That if it's a direct statement, you can't get out of that one. I know a lot of people that try. <laughs> you talk to someone who, you give them Acts 2.38, repent, therefore, and each of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. I, you tell that one to someone, that's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? But I know a lot of people that would deny that verse and the teaching of it. But they want to try to say, well, commands or statements, that, that carries a lot of weight. But examples, not as much weight. And then those necessary implications. Woo! You, uh, you, can't, you can't bind that on anyone. That, that's really, really hard to... Bind, because it doesn't carry much weight at all. And the means of establishing Bible authority are not contrived, as we saw in that quote a few minutes ago. They are not man-made inventions. The means of establishing Bible authority are just the tools of basic communication. I think I've mentioned before that I was working on my bachelor's degree in journalism, in the mass communication department, I took a class called Media Theory and Research, and it was stated that P 
people learn and process information in one of three ways. And the first way was through reports. And the professor defined those reports as prepared statements of fact. Okay? He said that you learn information through facts that are given to you. Imagine reading a, a, an article in the newspaper or in some kind of journal, and you get all these factual statements. That's, that's a report, he called it. Or you learn through judgments. And those judgments, the way he used that word, it's based on tests and examples. And in the third way that people might learn information is through inferences. And at this point, I'm like, whoa, this is like Bible class all over again. <laughs> Uh, I said, I've been hearing this all my life. That inferences are conclusions based upon the facts and examples. I'm like, finally, college paid off. <laughs> and whenever we're talking about commands or examples or necessary inferences or tell, show, imply, as Brother Moyer wants to say, it's nothing new. It's not even Church of Christ talk. It's not Church of Christ doctrine. It's how God talks. It's how we all talk. It's how Jesus talked. And while we often do appeal to biblical authority in talking about commands, examples, and inferences for establishing the pattern of how we are to worship God without the use of instruments, or what we may or may not do with the church treasury, and what some of my brethren, I think, are missing is that they go to this far-reaching idea that, well, we're never going to talk about it. As that one brother who said, you've never heard me preach about gopher wood. And if you continue to listen to that sermon, his whole point was that I'm never going to preach about gopher wood. I'm not going to talk about any of this. I'm not going to talk and preach about instrumental music as being sinful or as outside of God's authority. He was never going to do it. And I think what, while we have been absolutely right in trying to help people see the principles of Bible authority applied in the work of the church or how we worship God, I think to just ignore the subject of Bible authority altogether is completely absurd because Bible authority permeates everything that we believe. It's not just about the matters of the work of the church. It's not just matters about how we worship God. I hope that we can see that this evening as we study tonight because what my goal is is that we are going to look at some very key doctrines some very key components and tenets of Christianity, of what we believe the Bible teaches and how we see that it is taught through commands or statements and through examples and through inferences. Yes, we talk about Bible authority and how we worship without instruments. Yes, we talk about how we must do everything in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And I do that unashamedly. 
Yes, we talk about how we are to go into all the world preaching the Gospel and how we are to do that. We talk about general authority and specific authority. We talk about those things. Yes, we warn about doing things precisely according to the pattern that God has established. I think I would proudly describe myself as a gopher wood kind of preacher. In Genesis chapter 6 and in verse 14, when God was telling Noah, He said, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And as you continue to read in that chapter, the very end of that chapter, it says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. That we must be obedient in everything that God says. That even when, especially if God specifies the kind of wood that He wanted Noah to use, we must do whatever it is specifically that God tells us. But we also have to recognize that these are not the only areas in which these rules of basic communication would apply. And I think we can de demonstrate that very easily tonight. Take, for example, the deity of Christ. Last week we preached a sermon on the deity of Jesus. And we looked at a passage in, John, or in Mark chapter 2. In Mark the second chapter, and I invite you to be turning over there with me. Because I think this is a very clear and obvious point once we consider it from this light. In Mark, the second chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has come to Capernaum and He is preaching and teaching and many people are coming to hear what He says. He is in a house and no one, the room was entirely full. And he was speaking and preaching to them, and there was no room for anyone. And so there was this man that was paralyzed. And he has some friends, who these four men, who try to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus, and they let him down through the roof. And it says in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that was just like starting a wildfire there for them. Because in Mark chapter 2 and verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here they understood the very implication of Jesus' statement when He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they're saying, wait, I thought God was the only one who could actually forgive sins like that. And then Jesus, He rebukes them in verse 8. Immediately Jesus, aware in His Spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Which one's easier? <laughs> to say you're forgiven or get up and walk? And then he says in verse 10, 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Through the demonstration, through the visible demonstration of Jesus' power, what I would call an example here, Jesus demonstrates that He has authority to forgive sins. And just as they concluded rightly that God is the one who has authority to forgive sins, guess what the conclusion is? (laughs) And here's where you use a necessary inference. Jesus is God. Continue on in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, in our reading that we heard, When the Pharisees are discussing with Jesus about the Sabbath day, and we discussed this last week in the sermon on the deity of Christ, it says in verse 27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was provided and instituted for the man's benefit, not for man to... be able to control and to rule over others. That's not the purpose of the Sabbath. And then in verse 28, the very last verse, it says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And you have that statement where Jesus is describing Himself as the Son of Man. That He is the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. You go back to the book of Exodus and Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments where they children of Israel are told to keep the Sabbath day holy. Jesus is saying, I am the one who gave this. Implying that He is God again. You have to use a necessary inference, don't you? And I think as I mentioned last week, what I had neglected to observe and fully appreciate, even in that, I had made the connection going back to Sinai and the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, but what the law does, what God does when He's telling Moses about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, in verse 11 it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That even the giving of the Sabbath day, it goes all the way back even to the beginning of creation. And so if you follow Jesus' logic in Mark chapter 2, He's saying, I am the one who gave and instituted the Sabbath day. But then if you go back and you use another inference, you go all the way back to the creation that God is the one who created this world, Jesus. He is the one who gave the Sabbath law. He is the one who gave and created this whole world. It's a testament to Jesus' deity. And then in John chapter 10, we get a very direct statement by our Lord. In John chapter 10 and in verse 30, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is speaking about how He is at oneness and unified with the Father 
in His very nature. And it says in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. They knew exactly what He was saying. Now what I want you to see is that here we have established the deity of Christ, haven't we? I would say that is a central tenet to our confession and our salvation. And how have we established that? Through the same means and methods that we would establish anything else. Through examples and inferences and direct statements. Now we see this is just how communication works. We can see by necessary inferences based upon examples and evidence that this world was created by a designer. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans, the first chapter, a passage which I'm sure we are familiar, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. How do we come to realize God exists and that this whole world was designed by a Creator? How how can we come to know that? I've never seen God. I've never seen Him perform a miracle as we talked about this morning at the cross. I've never seen Him cause darkness like He did at Calvary. I've never seen those kinds of things occur. So how can I be certain that there is a God who exists? Paul says, you look around. You look at the design of this world, you see how everything works together. And by that evidence, God's eternal and invisible attributes can be known. You use some logical deductions. You make some conclusions. If you don't like the word necessary inference, try an unavoidable conclusion. I like that word just as well. That you see what... Happen, that you see the evidence and you make a, the logical deduction and conclusion that this didn't just come from nothing. And there was someone who created this. There was a being that created this and put it all together. Another thing that we see, I think... That's another fundamental doctrine of Christianity is our future bodily resurrection. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes in great detail about the resurrection. And he first appeals to the example of Jesus' own resurrection. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that, um, uh, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Paul's point is that Jesus was raised and that there is eyewitness testimony that you have those 500 people at one time that saw Jesus what do you think they would have been able to say? They would have been able to give some direct statements, right? <laughs> About how they had seen Jesus. But in the course of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is saying, look to Jesus. Look, He is the embodiment of what a resurrection is. And then notice as you continue on in verse 12. In verse 12, now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ has been raised, Paul's point is, if Christ has been raised, then there is a future resurrection. It's an if-then kind of logical statement. It's a necessary inference that Paul is drawing that if Christ is raised, then we will be too. Even Jesus our Lord defended the resurrection of the dead. In Matthew chapter 22, in Matthew the 22nd chapter, when Jesus was being questioned by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. In Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 23, Matthew provides some information there about the Sadducees. It says, On that day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned Him. And they give Him this big whole long scenario that they think is just going to stump Jesus. But then, notice what happens. Jesus says in verse 29, and, answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. Skipping down to verse, 32, or verse 31, He says, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And He quotes from the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then he makes a conclusion here. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Here is Jesus. He is appealing to a direct statement in the Old Testament. And then he draws the necessary inference. And you know how he does it? It's based on a tense of a verb. I mentioned in Bible class this morning, if you don't like English class and stuff like that, then you may not really enjoy studying the Psalms. You may not enjoy this particular point either. But in Matthew chapter 22 in the book of Exodus, when God was speaking with Moses, 
when, he, when God revealed Himself to Moses and He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He's speaking in present tense, isn't He? I am, not I was. I was would be past tense, right? Jesus is taking that statement and based upon the verb tense, that God said, I am, He's drawing a conclusion that, guess what, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they still exist. <laughs> And that God is not the God of the dead, but He is the God of the living. And based upon that, Jesus is saying that's how you get the resurrection of the dead. A fundamental tenet of Christianity, again, is established based on commands or statements and examples and inferences. And you know, whenever someone might want to criticize and say, well, I just don't know about those necessary inferences. I don't know if, the, if you can make a, a, an argument based upon that. Well, Jesus does. And he oftentimes, in what you see oftentimes in Scripture, is that it's in com- combination with a direct statement or it's in combination with an example. For example, in Paul... In talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the example of Jesus and His resurrection. And then he says, we will be too, essentially. He's drawing an inference or an unavoidable conclusion there. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gets us to see the permanency of marriage as God designed it through the approved example of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 4. When the Pharisees have come to Jesus asking about divorce, Jesus starts talking to them about marriage. And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the creation And he quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in verse 5. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He appeals to the approved example found in the Old Testament. And then you continue reading in verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then there's a huge word here in verse 6. What? Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. When you see the word therefore, guess what? It's a logical conclusion. (laughs) Someone's making a necessary inference. Unavoidable. And Jesus is saying, based upon the example of Adam and Eve and what God established in the beginning, What God has joined together, let no man separate. And then he follows it up in verse 9 with a direct statement. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. A very plain statement. Even our salvation... Salvation by grace through faith is established through these same basic rules of communication. In Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 15, 
there had been some discussion about Gentiles being saved and whether they had to keep the law of Moses or not. And it, you have the, the council that meet, met in Jerusalem. You have the apostles and the elders. You have Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter and, and James, the brother of the Lord. They all come together and they begin talking about these things. In Acts chapter 15 and in verse 5, it says that some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses that these Gentiles... They have to start keeping the law. They have to be circumcised if they're going to be saved. And the objections are made. And in verse 9, Peter says, and he made no distinction, God did. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In verse 11, he continues on, but we believe that we are saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter is saying that we are saved by grace through faith. The Gentiles are saved by grace through faith. It's not about the keeping of the law of Moses. And in verse 7, Peter says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Turn back just a few chapters to chapter 10. When Peter is given this vision from heaven, and he, he's not quite certain and it has to be repeated about three times for him, but in Acts chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter is told in a very direct way, Go, isn't he? Go with them. These people that have come from Cornelius, go with them. Peter's given a direct statement. And that's what Peter's referring to there in Acts 15 and verse 7, that God chose me to go preach. I was told to go and He went. Then you have Barnabas and Paul. In Acts 15 and verse 12, all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They said, look at what we have done. Look at our example. Look at the miracles and the signs that were accomplished. And then James, he begins to speak up. And I love what James says. Because he uses a necessary inference here. After he's heard all of this in Acts 15 and in verse 15, he says, with the words of the prophets agree. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes from the book of Amos, in Amos chapter 9, about how the Gentiles are going to be included. And he says in verse 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That's a necessary inference, isn't it? He's making a 
judgment. And that necessary inference was just as binding, it was just as authoritative as everything else that had happened. And here you have all three of them working together to to support the same point. We cannot afford to quit talking about Bible authority. Because if you quit talking about Bible authority, you're going to eventually give up on the deity of Christ. You're going to give up the idea that God created the world. You're going to give up the idea of our own future resurrection. You're going to give up the idea of the permanency of marriage. You're even going to give up the idea of salvation by grace through faith. If we undercut the rules of communication and how we understand all of that, there's nothing for those principles to stand on. And that's what scares me so much about those who are critical of talking about Bible authority. And if these critical and fundamental issues are established with the same rules of communication, command, example, and inferences, or tell, show, imply, then doesn't it stand to reason that they would apply for the ways in which we speak about worship without the use of instruments? Or evangelism being accomplished without the missionary society or the sponsoring church arrangement? Or in how we practice benevolence for the saints. We cannot afford to quit talking about it. Because everything is rooted in biblical authority. In Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, And in verse 27, the Apostle Paul, as he was with the elders of the church at Ephesus, in that last meeting with them, he said in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. When we have so-called gospel preachers who are ashamed or afraid or refuse to talk about Bible authority, can they really say the same thing that Paul just said? For our faith to be practiced and defined and defended, we cannot break away from preaching about commands and examples and inferences. Because Jesus tells us 
What we must do to be saved. He tells us very clearly, doesn't He? In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark the 16th chapter, in Mark chapter 16 and in verse 16, He says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Very easy, plain words to understand. We see that there's the promise of salvation if we would believe and obey God and Christ in baptism. The book of Acts, it shows numerous examples of believers in Christ being baptized. As I mentioned in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when people are told, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 41, So then those who had received His Word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You see the example of those people. And we see in Acts chapter 8 a necessary inference, an unavoidable conclusion with that Ethiopian who was reading from Isaiah the prophet. And Philip came and spoke to him and preached to him Jesus. And he is baptized after he confesses his faith in Christ. And in verse 39 it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Have you ever wondered how here's this man, he has confessed his faith in Christ, he's been baptized, and now he goes on his way rejoicing. He doesn't go on his way rejoicing before he's baptized. He's only rejoicing after he's baptized, after his sins have been washed away, after he has enjoyed forgiveness from God. You see the inference, the implication? That once you are baptized in water, you are able to walk in newness of life. No more guilt that would hold you back. You are able to enjoy salvation in God and Christ. This evening, if you're not yet a Christian, you can be saved in exactly the same way. Follow the words of Jesus. Follow the examples of those who have gone on before us. And then you can leave here rejoicing, knowing and trusting that your sins have been forgiven and that you are God's child. Maybe it is that you've lost that joy. You've not been feeling and experiencing the joy that you once had in your life. Maybe it is that you've lost your first love and you've left the Lord. Will you not come back to the Lord? He implores you. He begs you. He wants you to come to Him. If we can encourage you in some way this evening, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?